That report's about a year old, but the content is as relevant today as it was then, as you probably well know. Christians are being heavily persecuted and martyred around the world, particularly in some of our Middle Eastern nations as radical Islamists rape and burn and kill their way through huge swaths of territory in Syria, in Iraq, and several nations in Africa as well. Likewise, the Christian church in China today, in fairly recent developments, is facing its worst persecution since the Cultural Revolution, as churches are desecrated and being destroyed, and pastors are being imprisoned by the Chinese government. And we blame terrorists and governments and religions, but in Ephesians 6:12, Paul says, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so at the end of the day, responsibility for all of the hate and violence and persecution really rests squarely on the one that Jesus described as the father of lies in John 8, 44, and the evil one in John 17, 15, and Satan, he calls him in Luke 10, 18. He has many names, and he uses many different methods to try and destroy the church of Jesus Christ. Sometimes, sometimes he works through individuals. Sometimes through governments, of course, through false religions to accomplish his purposes, which are always opposed to the purposes of God. And although he holds no authority over us, we have the freedom to be complicit with his will instead of God's. In fact, we can do that and not even realize it at times. Remember Matthew 16, 23, when Peter, who loved Jesus, began rebuking him because Jesus was telling them that he was going to have to suffer and die for mankind. And Peter rebuked him out of love. And Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Okay? I don't think that when Peter was rebuking Jesus because he loved him, I don't think he realized that what he was saying was actually complicit with the will of the enemy rather than God's. But clearly it was based on Jesus' response. We can be complicit with our enemy and not realize it. And so understanding our adversary's tactics and being aware of his, his meddling in our lives is really very important for every follower of Jesus Christ because our enemy is always lurking at the gates of our lives, trying to weasel his way in, to wreak havoc wherever we allow him to. In Genesis 4-7, God warned Cain. He said, Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. All right? And Peter knew this firsthand, and he later warned the church in his own letter, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, he wrote, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5-8. And of course, that doesn't mean that we live in fear. Not at all. It simply means that we must remain ever vigilant and keep the, the figurative gates to our hearts and minds shut to the enemy. Interestingly enough, if you look at gates in the Bible and all the cities and Bible times, they were typically places where uh, some of the most significant decisions were made. In Ruth chapter 4, the gates of the city were both a town hall and a courthouse where judgments and transactions were made. It's where Boaz redeemed Ruth. In Genesis 22:17, the gate is seen as a place where justice is administered to one's enemies. In Psalm 127:5, the gate is a place of protection from the enemy. 
In Leviticus 4 and 16, we see the, the unclean parts of the animals from sacrifices burned outside the camp, outside the gates. And then in Hebrew 13, it tells us that just as those unclean animal parts were destroyed outside the camp, so too Jesus bore our sins and suffered outside the gates of the city. So the gates served many purposes relating to major decisions that affected people's lives sometimes profoundly and for keeping certainly unclean things, sinful things, and the enemy himself outside of the city. The gates served a very practical purpose in those days and likewise today, our enemy, the devil who is very real, often shows up, metaphorically speaking of course, at the gates of our lives. He shows up at the entry point of our thoughts and our emotions. In fact, he's frequently crouching at the door of our hearts and minds looking for a way in, looking for someone to devour. And so today, as we continue our sermon series, The Acts of the Apostles, with a message entitled Enemy at the Gates, we'll see Paul facing heavy persecution as usual. And if we pay close enough attention as we go, we can identify some of the most common ways that our enemy tries to work his way into our lives to get through the gates, if you will, and lay waste wherever he can, just as he attempted to do with... Yeah, my microphone died. I'm back. <laughs> and it's helpful to see how he tried to work against Paul because his methods really haven't changed. They really haven't changed since that day he was cast out of heaven during that cosmic beatdown he received by the Lord when he rebelled against God. He uses the same tricks and deception against people today as he did then. But the truly beautiful understanding that we come to by way of course a thorough reading of scripture which we see demonstrated in Paul's life here and also by walking out Paul's example in our lives is that no matter what the enemy throws at us, God's purposes are accomplished in our lives as long as we're submitted to His will and as long as we keep the gates to our hearts and minds closed to the enemy. And I'll tell you, I'm already looking forward to next week because we're going to talk about the victory that has assured us, that has guaranteed us, even when we're under heavy attack from the enemy as we stand firm in the Lord. But today, we're going to focus on some of the most common methods that, that He uses against us in His attempts to separate us from God which he does not have the power to do, I might add. But that doesn't stop him from trying, of course, and, and maybe through this we can glean from some of these passages how to keep the enemy outside the gates. So let's turn together to the book of Acts. If you'd like chapter 21, we'll pick up the story where we left off last week at verse 27. And just before we read it, as a quick review of last week and to set the stage for this part of our story, the Apostle Paul has just returned to Jerusalem from his third missionary journey. And there have been a lot of rumors flying around town about Paul telling the Jewish believers that they no longer have to recognize the Jewish ceremonial laws and customs, which was patently false. But nonetheless, the rumors were out there. So the pastors, the elders of the Jerusalem church, who were really worried about this, uh, they hatch a plan to have Paul parade some of the Jewish believers who happened to be under a Nazarite vow, down to the temple. And Paul's told to pay for their expenses and to cleanse himself ceremonially, since he just came back from Gentile territory, which was required in, with Jewish law. And then in doing so, the hope for the elders was that the people would see Paul acting like a good Jew. And maybe they would then stop stirring up all of these rumors about him. Because as we've already seen in previous messages... Rumors in Paul's day could quickly turn into riots. 
All right, so the elders were hoping to quell the rumors uh, as expeditiously as possible. So we'll pick up the story at the tail end of this whole demonstration by Paul at the temple. Verse 27. When the seven days were almost completed, and let's just pause there for a minute. I want to be clear on what's been happening for the past nearly seven days. Okay, Nazarites were purified at the beginning of their vow. And we know that from last week in verse 23 that these men with Paul were already under a Nazarite vow when he arrived in Jerusalem. So when verse 27 says, when the seven days were almost completed, that is referring to Paul undergoing ritual purification himself for seven days because he just came back from Gentile lands in Asia Minor. And any time a Jew came back to Jerusalem from Gentile lands, they had to go through seven days of ritual purification of cleansing in the temple. So just to paint the picture, Paul has been at this whole public display of his proper Jewishness for almost seven days. In other words, it isn't like he just showed up at the temple and he gets jumped by an angry mob. He's been proving himself a good Jew in front of the masses for almost a week now, doing everything that would be expected of someone who religiously keeps the law, which Paul did. And still, despite all his efforts to please the religious culture, the plan falls miserably apart. Not because Paul did something wrong or because the elders at Jerusalem at the church there should have come up with a better scheme. Their plan fails because regardless of what we do in this life, our enemy is bent on our ruin. And he'll use people and circumstances against us whenever and wherever he can. And so against Paul here, he employs one of his most common tricks. It's the first point in our outline. He lies about us. As we continue reading here, we'll see him using people as a part of his plan to tell lies about Paul. But keep in mind... God still accomplishes his purposes in Paul's life as long as Paul keeps his life submitted to God. Okay? Let's read about it. We'll finish verse 27 through 29. The Jews from Asia, Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Okay, the Jews from Asia here were Jews from Ephesus, where Paul had just been. These were Jews from the diaspora in Ephesus, where Paul had just traveled from after spending three years there. Because in verse 29 it says, They've previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. So these Jews from Ephesus are after Paul in a bad way. To the point that when they see him in Jerusalem, they follow after him. Which again, we've seen in previous chapters already. So this is nothing new, certainly for Paul. And they're accusing him of defiling the temple by taking a Gentile in with him past the stone barrier that separated the outer courtyard where Gentiles were permitted to go from the inner sanctuary, which was strictly forbidden for Gentiles under the penalty of death. In fact, uh, Josephus, uh, the first century um, scholar in his writings, he describes many inscriptions on those stone walls that were both in Greek and Latin that warned the Gentile who would think about entering the temple. In fact, two of those have been discovered by archaeologists, one in 1871 and one in 1935. They're both re written in Greek, and they read, and I'm quoting, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. 
Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> yeah, that's a happy note, isn't it? This was a serious crime, and therefore it was a serious accusation. But the accusation was a lie. Paul certainly knew the ceremonial laws. He, he knew the death penalty that went along with taking a Gentile into the temple. And as we've already seen, Paul followed the Jewish customs. So he would have no reason or motivation to violate the law. But this pursuit of Paul by these Jews had nothing to do with finding the truth. On the contrary, it had everything to do with perpetuating a lie in an attempt to divert Paul and the enemy wanting him to stop to divert him from his mission, his calling. Paul was going from place to place. As we've seen, he was making disciples, he was planting churches, he was training leaders, and the enemy wanted to stop it. Okay? And I'm telling you, our adversary hasn't changed one bit. He will tell lies about you to try and divert you from your mission, from your calling. He'll use just enough factual information about our lives and our circumstances to attempt to convince us and others that the lies are true. Right? Trophimus was a real person. And Paul at times was in fact with him. But he didn't take Trophimus into the temple, and yet there's just enough factual information mixed in with the lie to make it seem plausible to those who would listen. In China today, the government officials view the Christians in their country as a threat to the power structure of their government. And so they're tearing down churches and beating and arresting believers under the guise of building code violations. Now, these are churches that have been there, many of them, for a very long time. But now, according to the government, they're all of the sudden in violation of existing zoning and building codes that have also been there a long time. Okay? And the believers there by the thousands are pointing out that the government officials are taking the building codes and twisting them as an excuse to try and stop the churches from growing anymore. And that's what the enemy does. He takes just enough factual information to make his lies seem plausible, and then he twists it to divert believers from their mission, from their calling. But look, the enemy can't stop God. And he can't stop us unless we open the gate and let him in. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But first, just ask yourself whether or not you are on mission right now in your life. In other words, are you doing anything other than answering the call that God has given you? Because if you're not engaged in the mission of making disciples and your part in that, whatever that is, I can almost promise you that if you'll do some real honest soul searching to determine why you're not answering that call in your life, why you're not on mission right now, I can just about promise you that somewhere in there you'll find a lie that has to do with why you can't do what God has called you to do at this point in your life. Maybe it's, well, you're not ready. You don't have the right training. You aren't qualified. There are too many other needs in your life right now that need attention. Maybe you waited too long and you think that ship has sailed. Or maybe you're thinking you'll get to it later. Okay, but if we're honest with ourselves in answering the question, why am I not fulfilling my purpose in Christ right now? There is usually a lie in there somewhere that has us convinced that we cannot pursue that purpose that calling or that mission. And as always, that lie will be mixed with just enough factual information as to make our reason for not staying on mission seem valid to us. 
In other words, maybe it's true that you're not quite ready. Maybe it's true that you don't have the right training yet. Maybe it's true that you aren't qualified at this point. That may all be true. But when you, when you ask folks who give those kinds of reasons what they're doing to remedy that, like, hey, what are you doing to prepare for that ministry then? What classes are you taking? Who's mentoring you? How much money have you saved toward that mission? What books are you reading? What, what ministry are you serving in? What steps are you taking in preparation so that you'll be ready and trained and qualified when the time comes for you to embark on that mission? And very often, when I have these encounters and I've asked people those questions, they're met with a moment of silence and a blank stare, usually followed by a handful of sort of half-heart excuses because they've bought the lie that is mixed with just enough real information to be convincing that they can't do it. And this is where we have to shut out every single voice in our lives that is speaking in tension with the voice of God. Because any voice that is saying anything in your life that is different than what God is saying, that voice is lying to you. Just because there may be a little truth mixed in doesn't make it true. Okay? Truth mixed with a lie is no longer the truth. It's a half-truth, which is just a polite way of describing a lie. Truth is truth, period. If you add anything else to it, it becomes a lie. But our enemy has mastered the art of half-truth, which is why Jesus describes him as the father of lies. And Paul, having been down this road before, falsely accused, was prepared to die for the truth. And I wonder, I wonder how many of us would be and I include myself in that question, by the way. How many of us would be, if we were ever forced to make that choice, be willing to die for the gospel? It seems far-fetched in our country, really, and yet it's happening right now in other parts of the world, in many parts of the world, and I'm not so sure the world is as big a place as we think it is. I'm so thankful that we don't experience that kind of persecution here because we live in a truly wonderful place. But could that kind of persecution ever arrive at our doorstep? And what would we do if it did? I believe that's a question that the church should be pondering today. I think it's a question worth pondering because of another common strategy that he uses against us, which is violence. All right? He uses violence against us. People suffer physical violence and die in this world every single day for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can research that yourself and find that it's true. Would I give up my life for the gospel? Would I endure beatings and imprisonment and see my family killed in front of me for the sake of the gospel? Those are hard questions to answer. And yet there are people who are faced with the reality of answering those questions every day. Just as Paul was so often in his life. Let's read about it. Verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. So the whole city is stirred up here in a frenzy. They rush in together. They drag Paul 
out of the temple grounds. The temple grounds was a, it was a huge open area in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, it was the largest open area uh, within the city. And so they drag him quite a ways to get him outside the temple grounds. And interestingly, they shut the gates to keep the violence from desecrating the sanctuary. And there's a lot of symbolism uh, throughout Paul's life. We talked about this a little bit last week between him and, and Christ, particularly in the latter part of their lives, uh, in their respective journeys to Jerusalem and the trials before the authorities. And just as Jesus was taken outside the gates, as he was brutalized before his death, here we see Paul taken outside the gates to be punished by the crowd. But Paul's time hadn't come yet. And so he's rescued in a manner of speaking by the Romans. Okay? There's a Herodian fortress on the northwest corner of the temple wall known as the Tower of Antonia. And it was very tall and had two long flights of stairs that went up to it. And the Roman guards would look down over the entire temple area uh, so that when things like this happened, they could respond. And so the moment this angry mob forms... The soldiers spring into action and they uh, present, prevent the city from going into a citywide riot. As soon as the people in the mob, it says, see the Roman soldiers coming, they stop beating Paul. And when I would read through this casually for years, I would think, well, this wasn't so bad, at least as some of the other ones that he'd gone through, right? Because the Romans stopped it fairly quickly. But in really thinking about this, you know, if you've ever been <clears throat> punched in the face or kicked in the body really hard just one time. You know how bad and how long that can hurt? I was a police officer for several years. I took martial arts training and sparring throughout the years, not to mention that I grew up with four older brothers in the house. Been punched and kicked more than a few times in my life, and it only takes one punch or one kick or one elbow to put you in a world of hurt. In fact, I was a few years back in a in a dojo sparring and the instructor had brought in a professional fighter to train with us and so we're taking turns sparring with this professional fighter in the ring and so I'm in there with him sparring and he's hitting me but he's really tapping me hard you know he's not trying to knock me out he's trying to teach me and so the guy just moves like lightning in his hands and so he's talking to you the whole time and you're fighting and we're having a good time but he's saying hey Ken, don't do that now now you want to watch your swing this way now you want to move over here watch what I do here and he's teaching you while you're fighting with him and at one point he says to me you know at any moment you want me to increase the intensity of this a little bit I can do that <laughs> and I'm thinking hey I, you know I can handle it I said, yeah, you know, you can hit me a little bit harder if you want to. Before I could get the sentence out of my mouth, somebody's foot connected with the side of my face. And everybody told me it was his foot connected to his leg. I still don't believe it because it moved so fast. I never, I never even saw it. I just felt the impact of his foot clock me in the side of the head. And in that moment, I said, I'm good. Got it. I'm good. It's all the intensity I need. It took one shot to my face and my head was throbbing for a day and a half after that. I can't imagine a mob of people who are trying to kill you. Okay, they're not teaching Paul a lesson here. They want him dead. They're swinging for the fences. And who knows how many times Paul is hit and kicked and punched and stepped on and beaten before the Roman soldiers get to him. And yet, he isn't deterred from his mission one bit. Why is that? 
How many beatings does it take before you give up? How many times have we seen Paul severely beaten and put in prison and yet he just keeps going? It's no wonder, in truth, it's no coincidence that Paul, at the end of his life when writing to Timothy, likened his life to a fight. In his second letter to Timothy, he wrote these now famous words. He said, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. 2 Timothy 4, 7. If you've ever watched a professional fight, a championship fight, the greatest fighters never quit. They will allow themselves to be knocked unconscious before they, they give up. Their trainers might throw in the towel. The referee might stop the fight, but the greatest fighters will keep fighting, no matter how severe the beating is. You see, when you're a fighter for a living, when you, when you voluntarily sign up to be a professional fighter, you're not expecting an easy life. You're not expecting a pain-free life. You're not expecting to never be hit. In fact, you know you're going to be hit. You know it's going to hurt. You know it's not going to be easy, but you're in it for one reason and one reason only, to win. Fighters don't become fighters to live a comfortable life and then quit when it gets difficult. They fight to win, to finish the fight. And for the greatest fighters, giving up is not an option. It's no wonder Paul says, I fought the good fight, because he absolutely refused to ever give up, even when he was taking a beating. And I'm telling you, what the church needs today is more fighters. More people who are willing to say, I didn't sign up for an easy life. I didn't sign up to never get hit. I didn't sign up to quit. I'm going to finish the fight. And guys, we'd better get it settled now. Because the enemy is bringing the fight to our doorstep. Remember what God said to Cain. Sin is crouching at the door. The enemy is at the gates. Our culture, the culture in this country is changing. And the church, for the first time in my lifetime, is starting to get hit. And rather than making a decision to fight for the gospel, no matter how bad a beating we may take, there are elements of the church today taking off their gloves and getting out of the ring by compromising biblical doctrine because getting hit hurts too much. We really need to learn a lesson from Paul here, who in the midst of all of the lies and violence that came against him, he refuses to abandon the gospel, the whole counsel of God. He refuses to back off one inch. Okay? At times, the life spent following Jesus Christ is going to be a battle. At times, we're going to be confronted with lies and maybe even violence. And yet it goes even beyond that because one of Satan's favorite tricks against us is confusion. He brings confusion to distract us. Paul never seemed to be distracted by the lies and false accusations. He never seemed to slow down even when he was beaten mercilessly by mobs of people that hated him. The enemy never seemed to have much success against Paul getting to him because he kept the gates to his mind and his heart shut to the enemy. And so what often followed... We see a pattern in Scripture with Paul was the crowd being thrown into confusion, okay? Let's finish our text for this morning at verse 33. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of people followed, crying out, 
away with them. This is a picture of complete chaos. Back in verse 31, it says, all Jerusalem was in confusion. And here in verse 34, it says, some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, to the point that the tribune, which was a Roman commander, could not learn the facts because of the uproar. Total confusion. And they're all shouting away with him, which are the Greek words, uh, Iro and Atos. Or Iro Atos, they're shouting it out, which was the same shout that came from the crowd demanding Jesus' crucifixion years earlier, as we see in Luke 23, 18 and John 19, 15. So they weren't shouting merely, you know, get him out of our sight, take Paul away. No, they were, they were clearly expressing their demand for Paul to be executed. And what an ominous parallel with Jesus Christ it is, as the crowd not only shouts the same words at Paul and the Roman authorities as they did at Jesus and the Roman authorities 27 years earlier, but Paul is also standing in the exact same spot where Jesus was standing as the crowd demanded his execution as well. Our enemy is relentless in his efforts to stop the advancement of the church of Jesus Christ. And one of the go-to plays in his playbook is confusion. Now, we do see in the Old Testament situations where God uses confusion against the enemies of his people. He promises that in Exodus chapter 23, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we see that promise fulfilled in more than one place against the the Philistines in 1 Samuel. Also in Deuteronomy 28, God speaks of confusion as judgment on those who disregard his laws. And there are several other places throughout the Old Testament where we see confusion used by God as a means of protection or judgment. But that was an external device okay, that God used to protect against or bring judgment against evil and lawlessness. In the New Testament, in the context of the church, Paul makes it clear that when confusion rears its ugly head within the family of believers, in their gathering, in their worship, in their fellowship, that the presence of that confusion is not of God. In fact, he says God is not a God of confusion but of peace, 1 Corinthians 14, So God may bring confusion to those who come against us to accomplish his will, but for the believer, when we experience that debilitating, disorienting confusion in our own lives, that is not from God. God brings peace and clarity and direction and purpose to those who follow after him. When we experience confusion in our journey, As Christians, it is not from God, but it is predominantly because of one of two reasons, okay? And I'm going to highlight those quickly. First is that confusion can come when we fail to seek God. Confusion can come when we fail to seek Him. That can be remedied in several ways, certainly through careful and consistent reading and studying of the Scriptures, the Bible. Uh, There are a lot of people who wouldn't need counseling if they knew what the Bible said about their situation. And so the more we read and study the scriptures, the more we gain understanding, which can clear away confusion. And then, of course, there are situations that people face in life that are not specifically addressed in scripture, not directly at least. And that is one of the reasons that we need to seek wise counsel from other believers, as we're instructed to do all throughout the book of Proverbs to gain wisdom, which can combat confusion in our lives. And then certainly, we need to pray. Because we need to hear God's voice to guide us out of confusion and back onto the path of clarity and purpose. And all of these examples are really means by which God speaks to us. 
He speaks through His Word. He speaks through the counsel of others. And of course, He speaks through prayer. And we see examples of all of this, all of this consistently happening in the Apostle Paul's life throughout the book of Acts. Which is a big part of the reason that we don't see Paul groping around, confused about what to do next. Because he had a wonderful command of the scriptures. Paul knew what the scriptures said. He always listened to the elders of the church who gave him counsel and how to proceed with his ministry. And he prayed constantly. And he consistently heard the voice of God directing him. It's hard to be confused about life when you know God's word and you hear God's voice through prayer and other believers. That means a lot of effort. It means a lot of time on our part, learning His Word and listening for His voice. But it's hard to be confused about, about life when you know God's Word and you hear His voice. Okay, So confusion can come when we fail to seek Him as well. Confusion can come when we allow the enemy inside our gates. All right, The moment we allow unhealthy, ungodly, unscriptural influences into our lives, which can come in the form of unhealthy relationships opening ourselves up to false teachings, experimenting with lifestyles not in line with the teachings of Scripture. That is the moment that we invite confusion into our lives by the enemy, into our minds and into our hearts. And so many people say to me in counseling, they'll say, well, I just don't know what to do. Or I just don't understand. Or, Pastor, I can't figure out what's right. And so on. And I'm telling you, time after time after time, so many of those people that make those kinds of comments are simultaneously mired in relationships or lifestyles or teachings that we're warned about over and over and over and over again in Scripture. But when the only voices that you let into your life come from God's Word, God's mouth, and God's people, you will rarely be confused about the best path for your life. Can I say that again? When, when the only voices that you allow into your life come from God's word, God's mouth, and God's people, you will rarely be confused about the best path for your life. But as soon as you open up the gates and let all the other voices in, you'll hear some shouting one thing and some another, just as they were in verse 34 at Paul, because there was great confusion. Now, the difference for Paul is he never let those voices get past the gates of his heart and his mind. Okay? And the key to all of this is identifying the enemy and then keeping the gates closed to him. All right? Your spouse isn't the enemy. Your boss, even though he might look like it, is not the enemy. Your job is not the enemy. Your circumstance is not the enemy. Remember, Ephesians 6.12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, right? But against rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemy is like a mangy, snarling, yapping dog barking and baring his teeth from behind a closed gate. He looks and sounds ferocious, but he cannot get to you as long as you don't open the gate and let him in. But far too often, we open the gate and we let the enemy in. We, we shoot ourselves in the foot. We sabotage the truth 
and peace and clarity that God freely offers us by allowing lies and violence and confusion through the gates. And I know because I've been guilty of doing it myself. If you've opened the gates to your heart and mind to the enemy in any way, I'm just here to tell you today, it's time to slam the gates shut. And don't anymore allow any voices to speak into your life that don't start with God. God's word, God's voice, God's people. Don't allow any voices into your life that don't start with God. God's word, God's voice, God's people. Everything else must remain outside the gates. Next week we're going to talk about how we can declare victory over the enemy in our lives no matter how much damage and destruction he's brought against us because when you belong to God, he never abandons you. He never leaves you. He doesn't forget you. And one of the benefits of realizing the victory of Christ in our lives is being able to experience that truth and peace and clarity just like Paul did, just like Jesus did, just like so many others did in the midst of the lies and violence and confusion that the enemy brought against them. And that comes, of course, in part as we guard against the enemy at the gates. So we're going to close today with the words of Peter, who I think probably understood this sermon better than most. He understood the dangers of opening the gates to his enemy. This is 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10. Peter writes, Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. In other words, keep the gates shut. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, man, listen to this part, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That is a magnificent promise to every single one of us when we choose to shut the gates and resist the enemy in our lives. Let's pray.